I was telling you about how my dad helped me for the simple reason I was obeying and saw the wisdom of the fifth commandment. Within six months, this whole problem was over. It was all over, all taken care of. But let me tell you, when my mother came home from that storefront mission where she'd met and found the Lord, it just started then. And the persecution that dear woman went through, that's how I knew it was real. Years later in the university, when they're disparaging the gospel and saying that Jesus, I wasn't sure that he was a historical creature. And Christianity was a farce. I looked back on those saints at my mother's church. I didn't claim to be one myself. If I could name them. I would think to myself, this professor speaking from a limited experience, very limited, because I saw the change in my mother, how the poor and our end of town, she began to take care of them. I'll give an example, because these are the kind of changes that, that come when the experience is real. And if you claim to be saved, dear friends, the evidence has got to be there not just because you memorized a bunch of verses and hooked them together and thereby deduced you're a Christian. You don't become a Christian like that, and you don't memorize your way into truth either. This country's got more Bible quoters and Bible bangers with very little understanding, and sometimes it gets to be a little disconcerting. This dear woman, she didn't know much. She only had an eighth grade education. Lovely, beautiful woman could play the piano beautifully. 
and there were poor in our town. When I'd get home from that church with my mother on a Sunday morning, my daddy would be sitting in the, in the living room in a big Morris chair, fretting and fuming like Gemini 5 about to go off. He had to wait a whole 15 minutes on his dinner. Now, before my mother was converted, he didn't care if he ever had Sunday dinner. He'd want to take us to the lakes and the rivers and everything to play. But when my mother got converted, she said, I'm not going to raise a bunch of heathen. I'm going to take them to Sunday school, whether you like it or not, or whether, even if you kill me for it. So I went, sometimes like this. I thank God I had a mother that knew more than I did and wouldn't let me make an adult decision when I was 11, 12 years old. I'd get home to church with her. She'd go in the kitchen. She'd pull a oven door, this big range open, and pull out some things. In five minutes, she'd have a tray about that big. There was roast beef and mashed potatoes and gravy and coffee and bread and butter and some salad. Say, now take this to Brother Claude. Brother Claude didn't have a nose. Cancer had eaten it off from one of the poorest families in our town. But he went and was welcome at my mother's church. He sounded like this when he talked. Oh, God. I, I would go several blocks down the alleys to come up this two-room place where he'd stay. knock on the back door. He'd come and see me, and I'd have his Sunday dinner. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus loved Brother Claude? I should say. Well, my mother loved Brother Claude. How's God going to love him? Through angels and cherubims and seraphims? No. My mother's hands, my mother's heart, and her pocketbook. When I got home from there, now she had two big buckets, kettles, about that large and down. Imagine a 12-year-old kid carrying it. They're about that deep. There was a woman. My mother had gone to school with her in a little country school. Her name was Maggie. She had 12 children, one on the way, and her husband fell down the elevator shaft and killed him in the courthouse. We didn't have ADC then. If they had, she'd have been a millionaire. But God's people took care of her. I would get down there, there to their house, and knock on the door, take these two kettles in, and had roast beef, mashed potatoes, anything that we had on our table they had. I went there, and here were 10 kids sitting there. They were like stair steps. The others were in the crib, or one on the way. Sometimes that dear lady had just looked up from saying grace, and you'd look on that table, you'd think, what is she thanking God for? See, that's the kind of a mother I was raised by. And when you told people that Jesus didn't make a change in people's lives, professor saying that to me, I thought, you don't know my mother. And I'd sit there and say to myself, you don't know Johnny Jones, and you don't know Sherman Fife, and you don't even know the black person that goes, I only had one black person in town, but he was sure welcome there. See, later when I was in college and I had a Jewish roommate, he said, Con, you're not anti-Semitic, are you? I said, I don't know, what does that mean? <laughs> I, agree. I knew I wasn't after he told me. Fact is, when I applied for chief engineer, one of the biggest engineering firms in the city of Chicago, and later the biggest, said, how do you get along with Jews? I said, what do you mean, how do I get along with Jews? My Jew, my savior's a Jew. <laughs> I don't understand your question. 
You see what I'm saying? Now let me tell you what I had. I had habilitation. You know why these, Harvard came out with a report 10 years ago that penitentiaries don't rehabilitate. They're a failure. Well, in the first place, if you know law, that's not their function, the main function. Now, to habilitate. See, when you see a word with R-E, the prefix, what follows is supposed to have been there sometime or other, like to revive a church. It couldn't have always been dead if you're going to revive it. You take almost any word you see with the, with the prefix R-E, it presupposes what follows was there sometime or other. All right, now to habilitate someone means, or let's say if you were going to habilitate Admiral Perry's North Pole expedition, you'd have bought the dog teams, the sleds, the harness, the compasses, the sextants, all these instruments, everything they needed, you would have taught them how to use them. That's a part of habilitation. It has taught them how to live under adverse circumstances, very cold, and how to live off the land. We had some expeditions, they wound up eating each other. One of them was from my hometown. When they shipped his body back, they opened the casket, it was a skeleton. Well, if you habilitated, you see what you did? You outfitted them, you equipped them, but you equipped them mentally and physically. Now, friends, how do you expect prison chaplains to rehabilitate a bunch of criminals that nobody in the first place had ever habilitated them? Do you get that? I'll give you an example, one in the Bible, prodigal son. He was raised by right kind of a, a dad and mother. But uh, due to the incipiency of the human will, which means man's mysterious ability to originate his own actions apart from any outside or inside influence. He can say no to a good influence. He can say no to a bad influence. Say yes to a good or bad either. It's up to him. You can't cause a free moral agent. You can't cause sin. Only one verse in the Bible indicates you can, and when you study that, you'll find out the word cause shouldn't be there. It should be. It makes her a subject of, which there's an either or. But in cause, you know science. There's a light switch back there. I can go flick that light switch. It'll open the circuit and the lights all go off. I caused them to go off. Do the lights have any free choice? They have any accountability, any responsibility? No, they're not free. And they can't think, they can't choose. Well, we got educators today, psychologists and preachers and shrinks that use cause and influence interchangeably. No on influence, you can say no to, you can say yes to them. The godly mother I had. I have a sister this very day living that isn't Christian. She's a retired school teacher, 89 years of age. She's still in say, to my knowledge. But I have a brother down here in Houston. It's the same man. I have a sister retired in Nessitus up there in Indiana. She's a saved woman, has been for 40, 50 years. They said, one of my brothers and sisters said no to that good influence. I said yes to it. I said, I want my mother's Christ. Well, that prodigal son went out and lived up to his inheritance and righteous living. And he wound up in the only place my friend Leonard Ravenhill says there's absolute freedom. You know where that is? The pig pen. <laughs> absolute freedom. He had the whole pig pen to himself. 
and the pigs, of course. <laughs> Some company. So he, he begins to think, probably the first time in a long time, begin to use his head for something other than to keep his spinal cord from unraveling. <laughs> he thought, what's the matter with me? My dad's servants eat better than this. And it says he came to himself. Now here's where that good raising, that habilitation began to come around. It came out. He said, well, I'm going to go to my father's house. Now what I'm trying to say to you, you can raise a child perfectly, that doesn't mean he's going to be saved. There's no promise of it. When it says, train up a child in the way he should go, it's not talking about salvation, it's just talking about living right. Because if man's free, not even God can cause him to be saved. He can influence him. But man can say no to good influences. Or, yes. All right, but if you do habilitate him when he's young, the chance is 20 times better that he'll come to know the Savior. 20 times better. And he'll lead a better life. But we've left these basic things out in our time. I got converted to Christ in New York City. I went down to the sixth floor where my doctor was, a Jewish man, and I tried to witness to him. He said, Christ died for me. I didn't ask him to die for me. Why should he die for me? What Ted Turner here say, Bracey, recently in a paper? Something just bad, only worse. Well, I'm afraid this kind of thing hasn't been taught. Well, we do know that when you have a moral law, if you don't have consequences or sanctions, you don't have a law, you just have advice. I'm here to tell you the Ten Commandments are not ten pretty good old country suggestions. They're laws. And there's penalties for breaking them, and there's rewards for keeping them. Be not deceived, God is not mock whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That word that means the consequences of that action. There's primary consequences and there's secondary consequences. Some of them may not come for 30 years, and some of them may last for all the eternity. Well, when they break the law, if the lawmakers love the law and those in charge of enforcing it, if they're doing their job right, if they're apprehended, now you've got a problem on your hands, haven't you? Now let me show you the problem that God gives it to us in the Bible. I'll use his illustration. Daniel. There were four Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. I don't know where Daniel was the day they went in the fiery furnace. If he'd been there, he'd have gone. <laughs> there were four buddies. Well, the power of God was upon this young man because he was obedient. He was bright. He was unusual. Where does he wind up? Well, he's over there in captivity. Not his fault, but he's in captivity over there. And Darius, who was the king of the Medes and the Persians of a kingdom that stretched over 127 provinces, which happens to be about 1,400 miles. And the law of the Medes and Persians was that if a man's arrested for breaking the law, it's the king's job to see that he had the penalty executed upon that man. All right, here is Daniel up there. Number two man, the whole kingdom, and these other three just below him. Daniel is practically what you would call nowadays a prime minister. 
these other three, man, did they hate his intestinal fortitude. They said, well, get rid of him. And here's how the world begins to figure some of this we were just saying about children of this generation are wiser than children. I said, we'll get rid of him. We'll pass a law if anyone prays to any god or anything, ask for other than from Darius, he goes in a lion's den. And we'll have this for 30 days. Now, if Daniel asks, he goes to the lion's den. If he doesn't pray for 30 days, he'll lose power with his God. You see, even the world knows that. By the way, I've often said to Christians, if you don't know how Christians ought to act, ask your neighbor. They know. <laughs> well, they went down the street to his house. Here he was. He's want to do three times a day, praying towards Jerusalem. Had the window up. No secret service here. By the way, God never has had secret service. When are you guys going to get out of it? <laughs> He doesn't have a secret service. Some people I know think they're charter members, but not Daniel. He's praying. If that had been us, we'd have said, we'll see you in 30 days, Lord. <laughs> Someone had said, he, Lord, he who runs today lives to run another day. But not Daniel. He prayed, and they said, ah, we got him. And they did. They arrested him, took him over to King Darius, you ought to read about it in Daniel 6:14. It goes something like this. Then Darius labored till they're going down to the sun as to how he might deliver Daniel, but he found no way. What was the problem? Problem was this. Top men, top man, the kingdom has broken the law of the Medes and the Persians. All right, now if you're not going to execute the penalty of the broken law upon this top man, what's going to happen to our system of law? Same problem back there that they had with that woman Esther, who I think was the greatest female in the whole Old Testament. What a woman. I can get goosebumps when I preach about Esther. What a woman. An orphan, that. God has always used the weak things to confound the mighty. Well, now watch, here's his problem. He wants to forgive him. But he can't do it and be a righteous governor. He's got to uphold the law, doesn't he? Now, if he's going to not execute the penalty of this broken law upon the lawbreaker, he's got to come up with a substitute for the penalty because the penalty, when it's executed upon the lawbreaker, it strengthens the law, doesn't it? All right, now, if he's going to come up with a substitute, and this is the same problem God has had with mankind, when he gets to be a little bit more as that go on, because Daniel didn't have a rebellious heart. Most people wanting to get saved today got a real rebellious heart, and God has to deal with that in the atonement. All right, now if he's going to forgive Daniel, he's got to come up with a substitute for the penalty that will have the same effect upon the law that the execution of the penalty upon the lawbreaker would have had. You know what he did? He flunked out. He couldn't cut it intellectually. And if he had... He'd have flunked out morally because he loved Daniel, but not that much. He'd have had to die for him himself, wouldn't he? Yes, sir. If he'd have forgiven him without a substitute for the penalty. See, God can never have a way to forgive man his sin if it's going to hurt man and if it's going to hurt his moral government. But that's something that hasn't even dawned on 99% of the Christians today. 
Like Dr. Gordon Fee, the professor at Gordon-Conwell, said to me one day, said, Brother Harry, to my denomination, the blood of Christ is not much more than a religious rabbit's foot today. Go out and do any old thing you want and get down and plead the blood. Well, before this week is over, I'm going to get into what the blood really means, and I'll tell you, you won't do that if you really understand it. If you really understand it, that shows they don't. It'll take the presumptuousness out of you. What did David do after and pray after he had done that terrible sin with Bathsheba that he spent three years rooting in the mud to ever get peace over? He said, oh, Lord, deliver me from what? Presumptuous sinning. That's going out here and doing something you know is wrong, and then you're going to presume on God's mercy later for forgiveness? Don't you be too sure of it. Don't you be too sure of it. Because I'm going to tell you something here. You never heard from anybody else, but that doesn't make it untrue. I know the Bible says if we sin, we have an advocate. It doesn't say when. It says if. And that keeps up, keeps up. Most people don't know anything about Hebrews 6.4. That's speaking there of apostasy. That's a backslider that becomes an apostate, and God says, don't waste your breath on them. It's too late. They have sinned the sin of death. That's the unpardonable sin. Don't bother reading most of the sermon on what is the unpardonable sin. They'll say, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Just what it says, it is. It is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But wait a minute. John says there is a sin not unto death, but there is a sin unto death. And he's talking about the second death, the spiritual death, not the physical death. So this thing is not so simple as it's been made out in our day, is it? So if we sin, we have an advocate. I, that is, if we ever made it the first time to get forgiveness. So... So this man derives, couldn't figure it out. So he said, he gave me one of the greatest compliments. He said, Daniel, the God whom thou continually service, he'll deliver thee. Oh, that's great. So he starts toward the lion's den. If that had been us, we'd have called Pat Robertson and Billy Graham and had everybody in the country praying for us, wouldn't we? <laughs> he didn't. You know what he said when he went down in the lion's den? Oh, king, live forever. <laughs> That's what he said. You know why? He'd walked with the Lord since his youth. He knew if he died, it was just going to be a different place of fellowship with God. That's all. You know that tonight? If you died tonight, would you just go from this place of fellowship and walking with God to him and the great beyond? That's the way to tell if you're right. One of the ways. And he went down there, and he said, oh, king, live forever. <laughs> I think he made his pillow that night on the stomach of one of those lions down there. <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't afraid of them. I think God gave him lockjaw. <laughs> but my mother told me the reason, another reason they didn't eat him was she said that Daniel was 90% backbone. <laughs> <laughs> if you know anything about meat, backbone isn't very good eating. <laughs> Otherwise, he had some starch in it, too. <laughs> and he comes down the next morning to see how he was and what happened to those men that had cooked up this little mess. Can you tell me? They were thrown in there. The Bible says, if you dig a ditch for somebody, <laughs> you're going to fall into it. Oh, 
among the Lucretians, a part of Greece, they had a problem just like this. And the king's name was Zeleucus, and the country was falling apart because of adultery. And by the way, I believe I can prove it to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's the real cause of our great slums we have in our great cities. I won't take the time to do it here, but if I'd ever teach that in a class in sociology, it'd probably it'd have another crucifixion. But sin and adultery is the main cause of slums. You think slums make crimes? Or crimes make slums? Well, I'll give you a peek at it. Just build a 22-story building for it, make it perfect, and let all of them in there. And I'll tell you, 10 years later, all the light bulbs will be stolen, the bathtubs will be full of coal, everything will be choked up and everything. We got about 50 of them in this country now boarded up. You can't tell me the slums make crimes. Nope, crimes make slums. It's like my black preacher friend, he says, I'm not concerned about getting my black brothers out of the, out of the slums, I'm concerned about getting the slums out of my black brother, my black brothers. Strangers, not many talking about this, but Zeleucus had this problem in Lucretia. So he passed a law. If they apprehended anyone committing adultery, they would take two red-hot pokers and they'd burn their eyes out. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> adultery went down like that. But not too long, a time went by, they said, oh, we're going to see how he loves his law now. If he really is this serious about it, because they caught his son committing adultery. They came leading his son to him, said he has been found and convicted of committing adultery. Here he is, what are you going to do with him? He said, well, he's no better than anyone else, and here's what he did. It's a good picture of our Heavenly Father. He said, bring the red pokers. He took one of them and he burned his son's own eye out, right out of the socket. And then he says, all right, here. You take it out of mine now. They burn it out. And let me tell you, when King Zeleucus walked around his kingdom after that, I'm telling you, he was an august creature because that was a testimony to how he loved righteousness and how he hated sin. And you and I, every time we see the cross, we ought to know that our great God hates hates sin, and that's what it took for him to be able to forgive you and me our sin. And let me say this to you about the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. It wasn't the first idea that ever came into God's head. I believe God did all kinds of calculating and thinking and thinking to keep from having to send his son to such an ignominious death as that. Wouldn't you? Well, he had to have something that was going to uphold his wonderful moral government, but it's going to subdue the rebellious sinner so it'll make it safe to turn him loose on society and not tear down his law. That's why he could be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He was not only to forgive. And when you come to Jesus for forgiveness, friend, you better come with the idea of knowing that you're coming to be. Submit yourself for transformation. Like that dear woman who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic with a glory in his bosom. That means in the intimate presence of Jesus, 
that transfigures you and me and transfigure, transform means to make habitable. Didn't Paul say to the Christians, you're a habitation of God through the Spirit? This is no simple thing to come to Christ and get forgiveness of sin. It's the most profound thing that could ever happen. So, this just a little part of it. But wait a minute. Was that an exact payment? No, no. He said two eyes. He took out one of his own, didn't he? One of his sons. But it upheld public justice. And that's all the atonement, all the penalty is ever meant to do is to uphold public justice. I gave you a little bit last night when I was talking, or maybe the first night when I was talking about the difference between public justice and retributive justice. Public justice doesn't demand absolute retribution. No, it just does that which to show the general public how terrible it is to break the law. And the law is for the greatest good of the number of people. And it's not only to have penalty to punish the lawbreaker, but to be a deterrent and to protect the other people that are behaving themselves right. But I'm afraid not too many people ever looked in this very closely. So when you see that, that's a, not an absolute, not a real good picture. It was a Lucas, but not even of David or Daniel, because God did not have to subdue Daniel's rebellious heart. See, the problem with forgiveness of sin with you and me is greater than was with, with King Darius and Daniel, because Daniel was not a rebel. But we, when we've come to God, we've been rebels. And so God has to come up as a roadblock in our life to future sin. And it's the love of Christ on Calvary. Love of Christ on Calvary. And if that doesn't do it, there's no hope for your rebellious heart in anywhere in this whole world. Because that's God's remedy for that great demonstration love. So, I'm talking about transformation now. God has no way to forgive a sinner without transforming. So, we've seen in the human administration of law, one great difficulty in the way of pardoning is that there is no security for the reformation and future con conduct of him who is pardoned. But that, if an influence could be connected with the instrument of pardon which would secure this, the difficulty could be removed. This is contemplated and secured in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an essential idea in its nature that would secure this effect. Then in the gift of the Savior, in his character, in the manifestation of his love and in his suffering, on behalf of others, there is that which will secure the repentance, reformation on a part. By the greatness of the suffering of him who made it, the atonement is adapted to convince the sinner, that's us, of the evil of those sins for which he died, by the manifestation of love that is adapted to make an appeal to the gratitude of man, by the fact that those sufferings are endured in our behalf, is fitted most deeply to appeal to the hearts of the guilty, or always most deeply affected with the sufferings of an innocent man than with those of the guilty. Isn't that right? But we live in a day, and it's been here for a hundred years, that people don't like atonement based on suffering. But wait a minute, I'm here because my mother suffered. How about you? I didn't say, I don't want any birth with no, with no blood, no suffering. 
And I know people that, oh, they don't want the blood sacrifice. They don't want suffering. Well, they better take it the way God gives it to us. And here's one of the greatest things about it. No one, we have sinned against somebody. Who should make the first move at reconciliation? If I sin against you, and I can't sleep, and I gotta make it right. Who should make the first move? Think this through now. Who should make the first move at reconciliation? The one that's been sinned against? Or the one that has done the sinning? Who should make the first move? The sinner. But friends, God commended these love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made the first move. God made the first move. My, if that doesn't begin to melt you, you must have a heart of stone. God made the first move. We were hell bound and hell deserving, but he didn't want us to go there. So we don't mind so much of men suffering in wars. Oh, we don't like it. It's distasteful. But we're glad somebody's done it. And we're sitting here tonight as a testimony that good men gave their lives for us in Vietnam and over in Germany and many other places around the world. We don't seem to mind about that. Then why do we get so chintzy and so touchy about it? Jesus dying for our sins. I, I'll never be able to understand that. I never will. Why do we think we have to get to be so uppity and we can't, we can't take suffering in our place? So, friends, it is not law that reforms. It is love, compassion, suffering, and kindness. I remember one time when I was with some fellows at school, 16 years of age, and three of them got caught and I was one of them. They thought they caught me, but they didn't. This was in a watermelon patch at night. And they caught two of them, two of the richest kids. <laughs> and this farmer, he kicked them in you know where. <laughs> and he took them and he clanked their heads together like that. And I was the first man to ever run a four-minute mile. <laughs> but I want to tell you, when my dad finally heard about it. That's why I wouldn't let him catch me, because if I knew if he caught me, my dad would hear me. His shotgun went off. I thought, oh, if I stop, my dad will hear about it. So let him shoot. It won't be much different. So I took off. They didn't catch me. I ran all the way to the city library, one mile. Walked in there and said, Miss Cochran, it's 8 o'clock. I was establishing my alibi. <laughs> but then later I told my dad, I told my dad, I was afraid, Dad, I brought shame to your name, and I knew you're a good man. You never broke the law, but I was out trying to had a watermelon that big, and it was going for the, and I was wrong, Dad. He put his arm around me, he said, son, I was young once. I was young once. I'm going to tell you, that had a greater effect on me than if he'd spanked me here, give me one of those treatments with a nickel's worth of lumber out there in the garage. 
Not that he wouldn't do that, but he thought this son had had enough. It had enough. And that kindness of my daddy, I'm telling you, I would have gone through floods and wars for him. So you see, in accordance with you, I'm talking to you about the fact that the reformation of the world has been accomplished as far as it has been accomplished at all, not by judgment and wrath, but by the gospel of Christ. Floods, wars have done a little to reform the guilty and to melt the hard hearts. Punishment won't do it. It has been, in fact, the manifestation of mercy that has been the means melting the hearts of men and turning them back to God. There's a very fine foreign mission called TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission. It was started by two men. One was Danish and the other was Swedish. And uh, I've been the president of a foreign missionary organization now for 37 years. And I worked for one of these men, his brother at International Harvester. I'd like to tell you how he came to Christ. He was a lad 16 years of age in Denmark. Here's a man who left a great stamp on foreign missions, his life. I'd like to show you how it came about. He's in a YMCA in well, you'd call it YMCA, that wasn't the name, in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Here came a, a lad in there about 17 years old. He was 16. This kid was dressed very poorly, shabbily. He come up to young Bach, and he gave him a tract. Here's, read this, this is how I got saved. You can read about, you can learn about Jesus from this. And Bach took that tract, wadded it up and threw it on the floor. This young man stopped. He got down on his hands and knees there and looked for it and finally got it up and he straightened all on the tears came down his face. That somebody would treat the truth of God like that. He didn't get mad, didn't say a thing, but Walter Baca turned around and the Spirit of God came upon him and began to weep. And he went home and he went to the cross and was trans forgiven and transformed by the grace of God and gave his life, the rest of that life, to take the gospel where it's never been heard by one young 16-year-old lad that only gave him a track, but had a gentle, tender heart to go with it. You know where he got that heart? I know where he got it. He got it at Calvary. But it seems like we don't want that kind today. Walter Bach had it, and I'll tell you something, his brother that I worked for him had it too. So reconciliation is in fact produced between God and man by the atonement. God becomes a friend of the pardon sinner. Listen to this very closely, my friends. He admits him to his favor, treats him as a friend. The sinner becomes a friend of God. Jesus, didn't he say, if you do whatsoever I command you, you are my friends? John 15. 
The sinner becomes a friend of God. He changes his view of the character of God. He submits to his arrangements. He no longer opposes God's plans. He's pleased with his government and laws. He loves him as he loves no other being. He loves to promote his glory. He loves what God approves, defends what he has stated to be true, advocates the plans which he has formed, vindicates the doctrines he has revealed, trusts in trial to the promises which he has made, flies to him in times of trouble and sorrow, leans upon his arm in death, finds in the mortal agony his highest consolation in the belief that God is his friend, and expects to find felicity in the future world only in God. There's no friendship so strong, so sincere, so tender, so enduring as that between God and the reconciled sinner. And no work ever undertaken is so complete as that by which reconciliation of God and the man has been sought. It survives all changes through which man passes here in this world, is confirmed in death, and will exist forever. But man, dear friends, did you know God has problems in reconciliation, has problems with you, with me. And there's four of them that's got to be solved. Most people don't think God has any problems. He sure does. Jesus worked out the problems on God's side, but now there's problems on our side. Now, here's the first one. Sinners love their sin, don't they? They're never going to be reconciled to God while they're in love with their sin. That's the first one. And by the way, until we find some men can do intelligent preaching on the blessed law of God, they're going to love their sin forever. Paul said, I preach that all the world may, might become guilty before God. How do you get them guilty? By preaching how wonderful, right, and reasonable the wonderful law of God is. Three times in my life I've been having a pleasure to go to church, spend one Sunday each with the whole congregation on one law at a time. If you want to see conviction of sin, just preach the rightness, the reasonableness, the practicality, the unity of the wonderful Ten Commandments and the blessed Spirit of God. Don't preach that they're impossible, because they're not. You're, you're calling God a, an arbitrary God. If you say he made laws that nobody could keep, that's the biggest insult you could ever give to God. What would you think of me if I commanded my boy to fly over that house and when I never gave him wings? I'd be a terrible father, wouldn't I? God doesn't command man to do anything he can't do, and God commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. So, but until we teach them how right, how reasonable, how wonderful, how wholesome the wonderful law of God is, we don't see ourselves as lost and doomed and held down, hell-bound and hell-deserving and rebellious. Finney used to preach a sermon on repentance, true and false, and he said the difference between true repentance and false repentance is in one thing. They're both sorry for it. One sorry, got, he got caught. Another one, he's sorry because he can't, can't keep on doing it and get to heaven. But Finney said, true repentance, they're sorry for it, but what they've really done is they've had a change of opinion about sin. Now, how are people going to have a change of opinion if they don't hear some intelligent preaching about the blessed law of God? 
How are they going to? You wonder why we don't have revival in our day? You can't put your finger on a better reason than that. Second, man has an unwillingness to be reconciled to his maker. Somebody's got to do some real work getting him to become willing. To become willing, because God, there's no irresistible grace with God. God wants to save everybody. He's not willing that any should perish. Isn't that Bible? But man has to become willing. Well, if they had enough people running around this world to leave a Christian influence and a Christian aroma like my mother did, I think it would be a lot different world today. I stood her grave. I mean, at her casket, January 10th, 1963. Women came up, sure, from the poorest end of town. They wept on me, and the whole, this side of my suit was ringing wet. Said, Brother Harry, I wouldn't be in the kingdom today if your mother hadn't brought me clothes for my little kitties and brought me food, did that for a couple months, and then, can I take your kids to Sunday school? See, my mother earned the right to be heard. Earned the right to be heard. Then after she had my kids going to Sunday school, she started getting after me and Buddy. Pretty soon, the whole family was saved. But she earned the right to be heard. Woman after woman after woman, and men come up to me. <laughs> This dear woman with only eighth grade education. My suit's wet. And you know something? I didn't want to get it clean for a month. I didn't wear it anymore. But I thought that was wonderful. And about 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of travel, and I don't get back to my hometown in Indiana much anymore. I love it, too. The only, the only real job I was ever offered in a church that ever was a, a let's say, temptation to me because I've been offered some good jobs by some big churches but that hometown Baptist church of mine when I retired wanted me to become the pastor man I could live on that Wabash River and let my mud feet go down in the mud and, and that and live 140 years but that isn't the promised land I couldn't do that I had to be out here where things are going on in the war I'm not in God's secret service. I'm just a buck private. But those people that I have met, and by the way, I don't see anybody wanting to fight with me over my ministry on college campuses, or in some of the churches where they waited outside to beat me up because I preached repentance. You'd have thought I was, I was speaking about nuclear physics when I'd be in talk about repentance. They didn't understand. It's a condition, one of the conditions of sanctification. And sanctification is a condition of justification, if you really know your theology the way you should know it. Now, that's quite a statement right there that I've said, but it's as true as we're sitting here in Texas tonight. Third problem God has a man getting reconciled is a lack of truth. Now, I have, to, I have to say this. 
I have to with a, give a reservation with this. I was asked to come to a new theological school about 10 years ago, and they asked me if I'd come up there and help them get it off the ground. They said, Harry, we know you'll draw a big crowd up here, and the people will come, and they'll see about the school, and uh, we'll have it in the gymnasium. We'll get a crowd out there. They did the first night, 48 there, <laughs> rattling around that gym. Wednesday night, place is half full, but Friday night, every seat in the, in the bleachers and the floor is all full. But a lawyer came up to me. He said, Mr. Khan, can I talk to you? I said, sure. We go over and get away from the people. He says, I got a problem. I said, only one? I said, I figured I'd bother you all over the place this week. He said, you have. But I got a problem. I said, what is it? He said, Mr. Khan, you've been going on moral government this week. You haven't even got the atonement yet or the moral law. But he said, does a man have to know all of this to get saved? I said, no, he doesn't. But the more of this he knows, the better chance he's got of getting saved. When he sees the rightness, the reasonableness, the intelligence of the blessed gospel, how it was made for us, and we're made for God, but we're, we're rebels against him. But I said, I'll tell you something. I only know one other preacher in the country that preaches this. I'm sure there's others, but I don't know. I said, listen, you don't have to have a lot of knowledge to get saved. That's why little Sammy Morris could get saved over in Africa without a Christian within 200 miles of him. Because the heavens are declaring the glory of God, but he decided he wanted to get right with that God, and he wanted more than anything else in this world, and he'll seek me with all his heart, he'll find him, even there. I know way back in West China, preaching back there, a man is preaching, he sees a man in the back of the crowd with a smiling face who's just glowing. He preached the gospel for an hour and a half and dismissed, and the man came up. And he said, I know him, but I didn't know his name. I, I know him. And that guy was really How many of you know who Helen Keller was? Well, you know, she couldn't hear and she couldn't see. She couldn't talk. But when that woman got with her, this coach finally got through to her and then started about a year later to give her the gospel. One day a smile came to her face. She came back to her real quick. I know him, but I didn't know his name. I know him, but I didn't know his name. The word for it in the Greek is gnoskasin. That means to know by a personal acquaintance and a personal experience with him. God can communicate, even with Sammy Morris. So I said, you don't have to have a lot of truth to get saved, but you do have to become willing to obey all you know, no matter how little or how much, how much. But how many of you know a preach that? They better start preaching if they want God's Holy Ghost of God to stand behind them. So a lack of truth. Now let me show you something. How much more time do I have in this session? All right, a certain preacher was asked to come to Peoria, Illinois. Eighteen churches went together. Now you better learn this if you really want to do a job for God. First Sunday night, the speaker gave an invitation godly usher walked over to a man in his area, put his hand on his shoulder and said, Mr. I've begun to get on the aisle with you in an inquiry room if you repent of your sins and ask Jesus to save you. The fellow says, I don't need to get on the aisle. I can get saved right here. And the godly usher said, no, you can't. 
just walked away. Say, I want to tell you something. That I sure knew more than that preacher did. Sometimes that's not too hard. Monday night, same thing. Same usher, same section, same sinner, same gracious invitation, same nasty reaction. Tuesday night, same thing. Wednesday night, same thing. Thursday night, same thing. Friday night, invitation is given. He walks over to this man, puts his arm on his shoulder just like he had before, and gently said, Mr. I'll be glad to go down the aisle with you in the inquiry room and pray with you. If you repent of your sins and ask Jesus to save you, turn around. He said, Mr., you think he can really save someone as selfish, as sinful, and self-centered, and mean as I am? Do you think he really can? He said, yes, he can, and he can save you right here. <laughs> he wasn't ready before. The Spirit hadn't been able to make these things real to him yet. There was not enough reflection done yet. You know what I mean? That means some concentrated thinking on what you've heard. And we don't give the Holy Ghost to God time to make things seem real. And we get them down to the altar, and they don't know what it's all about. If they do get converted now in our day, I think over 90% of the time it's in spite of the preaching. Over 90% of the time. That should not be. That should not be. So the lack of truth. Now, the fourth. You want to be reconciled? Here's the fourth problem. Sinner needs to be brought to a place of willingness to be at peace with God and seek his pardon. I said, seek it. I didn't say accept it. I said, seek it. Wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him, and for he will abundantly what? Pardon. Not parole. Pardon. Now, when you begin to see this, you can see why I don't have any money. That's why my friend, I remember many times when R.G. Letourneau didn't have it either. I had a friend of mine go out and get a big loan for him one day. He'd have been down right through the ringer. I was friends of both of them. Because R.G. gave, and he gave it till it hurt, and then he gave to go ahead and feel it. And he wasn't stupid with his money either, because one time a preacher come up and says, R.G., God told me to tell you to give me $7,000. R.G. says, okay, I'll do it when he tells me. He never did. But you know the greatest missionary denomination there has ever been has been the Moravians. They had one missionary for every nine members. Every nine members, and I've been on some islands where they sold themselves into slavery. They get there and pulled plows in a harness like a mule and died of heart seizures. They get there, but they evangelized the islands. And one day, two blonde-headed German boys got on this boat in Hamburg. All the relatives from Hernhut came up to see them all. And they were saying, why, oh, why would you throw your lives away? You're going out there, we'll never see you again. They didn't go out for three or four years and then a furlough. Why, why will you throw your lives away? Kept asking that question. They took the halyard off, and the wind began to take it on. Those two toe-headed Teutons hooked their arms together, got their heads together, cupped it like this. Here's the reason. That the lamb that was slain might receive the due reward of his suffering. That's why they was going. 
that the lamb that was slain, that was the answer to their why, might receive the due reward of his suffering. Who is that? That's you. That's me. That's you. And that's any other person in this world that hasn't heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because those German lads had been under Count Zinzendorf who knew what he was doing when it came to preaching the gospel. He had no little light except Jesus deal with him. So, tomorrow night, or the next lesson, if you think those are problems, I'm going to show you more problems tomorrow. These people, they, the worst thing that we do to the things of God is we oversimplify truth, and when we do that, we leave out the right meaning, the essence. If you overcomplicate something, I can get it there. That assumes that the truth is real there. But we're tomorrow, the next lesson, we'll get into many more of these things, and you begin to see something about the heart of God when you see the problems they had with man because he only has our good at heart. Like Charles Grandison Finney said, the easiest man to win to Christ is a lawyer who knows something about law. Our Father in Jesus' precious name, I ask thee to bless these people, bless this truth. Spirit of God, if any of them be not within the ark of safety, I pray that your spirit would give no rest nor peace this night and nights to come until they have thrown down their weapons of rebellion and come and seek Jesus at the foot of his cross and let him have what he died for. And may the rest of us so live, dear God, that the life we're living will be worth Jesus dying for. For we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.